This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, January 10th. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm reporting from San Francisco this week from the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, colloquially known as either the Super Bowl of biotech or the Woodstock of biotech, depending on which high school stereotype you were. You might think that there'd be a heck of a lot more hippie types here in SF, but after attending an event two nights ago called Burgers and Beers, in which about 200 men and 10 women packed into a single bar to watch football, I'm really not so sure. Anyway, today's episode is going to feature clips from interviews with various CEOs of biotechs that presented at the conference. The first interview you'll hear is with Barry Green, the CEO of Alnylam. Barry, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Christine, thanks for having us. So I would love to set the stage for our chat by discussing first a little bit about the scientific platform that you guys are working with, which is RNAi. So can you give us a little bit of background on what that is, how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So Alnylam, which is now 15 years old and on the cusp of becoming a commercial stage company, was actually founded on this breakthrough discovered in biology called RNA interference, which is a natural process in all of our cells that manipulates the genome. So what does that mean in playing English? Today's drug works by uh, binding to protein and stopping protein action. We stop the protein from being made in the first place. So if you had a leaky faucet in your kitchen, today's drugs work by mopping up the floor. We shut off the spigot. And we can leverage RNA interference to create an entire new class of innovative medicines. That's awesome. So how does this uh, differ from something like Antisense? Yeah, so uh, both uh, both RNAi and Antisense target the message. So DNA makes RNA, which encodes protein, and both work by cleaving message and stopping protein from being in the first place, shutting off the spigot, if you will, as I said before. RNAi, though, is a natural endogenous process that is catalytic. So what does that mean? That means, and we've, we're demonstrating this with our drugs today, very small amounts of drug can work for long periods of time. Very cool. So you mentioned that this is the year that hopefully, assuming everything goes according to plan, Alnylam will become commercial stage. As you prepare to launch the, the drug Patisserin later this year, what are the greatest areas of focus and how are you transitioning to a commercial stage company? Yeah, well, look, we're entirely uh, ready to be a commercial stage company. In fact, when we founded the company 15 years ago, uh, retaining important medicines in major markets, U.S., Western Europe, was always part of our strategy. So we're here on purpose, if you will. This is not a mistake. We didn't, uh, by happenstance, get in get into this position. And we've been premier, uh, preparing to be commercial, really, from the very beginning. So we filed both the NDA and MAA for Apollo, a really spectacular set of data uh, demonstrating the ability to reverse hereditary ATTR in majority of patients. A data data unseen in this patient population up to this point. Uh, and with regulatory approval mid-year in the United States, kind of end of year in, in Europe, we'll be launching Patisserin. What we've been able to do in the meantime is set up our supply chain. It's always important to get drug to patients. And we're really building out our medical affairs, kind of patient access and patient hub capabilities. So the day we get approval, we're ready to ship drug to patients. For background, can you tell us a little bit about the indication? Yeah, we've studied uh, Patisseran in hereditary ATTR amyloidosis. It's a rare orphan disease that's caused by the misfolding of a very specific protein called, called transthyretin. 
This is a protein that's made in the liver, which is where our drug works. And when this protein misfolds, it deposits in peripheral tissues. So nerves, heart, and gut, uh, creating major dysfunction and, and major disability in patients that for the most part becomes fatal in two to 15 years. By providing patisseran on a re every three week basis, we've seen a significant reduction in the, the, the TTR protein, so knockdown of TTR, which in fact has resulted in uh, regrowth of nerves uh, and in fact, a beneficial effect across a wide range of the endpoints of neurological dysfunction, uh, cardiac dysfunction, and autonomic dysfunction. So people's uh, stomach gets better and other autonomic dysfunction gets better as well. It's been pretty remarkable and very satisfying for this patient population. That's awesome. Given that it's a very rare disease, how are you thinking about pricing? Yeah, so, you know, we, uh, we've from the beginning believed that uh, if, we if we deliver extreme innovative value to the healthcare system, we should demonstrate and document that value. This is a disease that costs the healthcare system a significant amount of money. Uh, people become disabled, therefore can't work. Their caregivers can't hold full-time jobs. They're often hospitalized and consume a significant amount of healthcare dollars from the system. So by bringing forward innovation, uh, we think we should get paid for it. You know, that being said, we, we launched patient access principles last year. We're among one of the principles was to provide value-based pricing. So we'll have orphan-like pricing, which are hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, of drug, uh, but our agreement with, with payers and with countries that want to get into these value-based agreements is we're going to put our money where our mouth is and structure agreements so that people pay for outcomes. So what does that actually translate to for you guys? Are you offering rebates or what does that look like? Yeah, we're still working through exactly what the value-based agreements look like, but it can range anything from uh, try the drug to make sure it works and you've got T-tier knockdown through measuring sets of endpoints out at 12 months to ensuring that we have the beneficial effects that the overall population uh, has seen on a specific patient-by-patient -patient basis. And if so, we get full payment. And if not, there could be a level of discount or return uh, for that patient going forward. Very cool. Something that you mentioned in yesterday's presentation that I wanted to dig into a little bit is that you think that many analysts are overestimating the near-term value of patisserin and underestimating the long-term value. What do you mean by that, and how can investors uh, act accordingly? Yeah, great, great question. So there, there, are, there are different kinds of orphan diseases. Obviously, orphan diseases are meaning, meaning it's rare and there aren't a big, big set of numbers. There's some orphan diseases like cystic fibrosis, for example, that are not hard to diagnose. So while there are rare diseases, if, if your son has cystic fibrosis, they get diagnosed pretty quickly. There's other kinds of orphan diseases and historically diseases like uh, PNH or HAE fall into this category. So in our case, hereditary ATTR amyloidosis falls in the category of hard to diagnose disease because it's a multi-systemic disease that frankly physicians just don't look for. So while there are a significant number of patients out there, we have to put significant effort in place to find those patients. They're often in the healthcare system, but may have been misdiagnosed with a, a different kind of uh, neuropathy, a different gastroenterology uh, issue, or even uh, um, a cardiac issue that's not, in fact, appropriate. It could be hereditary ATTR. So what we're doing is disease awareness, uh, physician and patient education, uh, patient finding initiatives. For example, uh, we've put something in place called Alnylam Act, which is free genetic testing for physicians and patients if the physician suspect a patient might have this mutation of TTR. 
And by providing free genetic testing, we're helping the healthcare system, in fact, identify patients much more rapidly than they might have on their own. So that's a long answer to, it's going to take significant work to find the patients, get them on drug and get them on, on paid drug, a ramp uh, potentially slower than some of the analysts projected. But in the long term, we have an opportunity for not only hereditary ATTR, but asymptomatic carriers, and in fact, wild type TTR amyloidosis, particularly with our next drug, ALN TTRSCO2, where there's hundreds of thousands of patients. And how far along is that one? We had committed to start a phase three for ALN TTRSCO2 later this year. Uh, and we committed at this conference that we'll, we will be developing that broadly for all TTR amyloidosis. Great. Uh, continuing talking about the pipeline a little bit, I'm always interested in the strategic decisions about trial design. So something that stood out to me is that you'll be using a surrogate endpoint uh, for approval for givoserin in porphyria. What are the risks in using that sort of accelerated pathway? Yeah, so just to back up on, on, on Gavosaran. Gavosaran is, is an RNAi therapeutic target at the treatment of acute hepatic porphyria. This is um, a, a bunch of orphan diseases that are characterized by extreme abdominal attacks that create a, a, a significant amount of other symptomology, such, such as psychosomatic issues, and in fact, chronic pain and disability between attacks. What we've seen with Gavosaran is that we dampen this toxic pathway of ALA and PBG by targeting the top of the pathway. And that's resulted in about 75% lowering of attacks. Really amazing for uh, these patients that, that have pain and just live between attacks. What we've been able to demonstrate thus far, and it's really been a, a remarkable uh, clinical effort, is that by lowering ALA, we demonstrate a lowering of attack rates. So our phase three design is in fact set up to show a differential in attacks between placebo and drugs. So we do have that hard endpoint of attacks. But what the US FDA has agreed to is an interim analysis where 30 patients have reached three months on urinary ALA only. And uh, we've show, shown so far that, that ALA lowers when we treat with Gavosaran. So we feel really good about the surrogate endpoint. But in fact, we, we will have the complete data trial results showing a difference in attack rates on drug versus placebo as we market and sell the drug in the US and Europe and rest of the world. Great, and how are you thinking about the risks that are associated with taking that pathway? Well, the interim analysis is, is a pretty good pathway, uh, particularly in the United States where um, we've already reached agreement on showing ALA reduction as an, as an accelerated approval, and then we'll submit the full drug showing, a full uh, phase three trial showing reduction in attacks as the full beneficial data set. Outside of the United States, we may in some countries, in fact, wait for the full data set because you really have only one chance to set pricing. So that full data set outside the United States will probably be even more important. Okay, interesting. So uh, before we sign off, I want to give our listeners a taste of the conference itself since we are here in San Francisco. So as as a CEO that is uh, presenting and being a part of all of these discussions and meetings um, day in, day out, I'm sure your schedule has been even more hectic than mine has been. And so I I have pretty much been like mainlining caffeine just to keep up. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see your coffee mug. You've been doing the same thing. But every year, this conference draws more and more people. I think it was something like 10,000 attendees this year. What makes it so special? So J.P. Morgan and, and, you know, frankly, H&Q for those of us that were around back then that remember it really was the kickoff, healthcare kickoff meeting of the year. And uh, I see more people that work down the street in Cambridge out here than I do 
in Cambridge. It really is the center of the universe this week when it comes to healthcare. Everybody's here, and you know, everybody's grateful for J.P. Morgan for hosting the week, but frankly, every bank and every analyst and every investor is out here. So it really is a very efficient way of meeting hundreds of people in one location uh, and one spot, and uh, there's always a great buzz around J.P. Morgan. There certainly is. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to meet with me today. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Before we move on to the next interview, I want to say thanks to Casper. I don't know the last time you bought a mattress, but if it's been a while, then you should check out Casper. Their mattresses are designed by humans for humans. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And they make buying a mattress easy. You order online and it's delivered right to your door in a compact box. They offer free shipping and free returns in the US and Canada. And it comes with a risk-free 100-day trial. Considering we spend one-third of our lives on a mattress, it's so important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing. That's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out. Some of our coworkers here at The Fool have bought these mattresses and love them. It's available in the US, Canada, and now the UK. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Next up, I sat down with the new-ish CEO of Arena Pharmaceuticals. You may remember the name as the maker of Belvique, an obesity drug that commercialized, quite frankly, terribly, leaving the stock in the dust. The company abandoned the drug and replaced its management team, and the arena of today bears little resemblance to the arena of a few years ago. Here's my conversation with CEO Amit Munshi. We're here today at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with the CEO of Arena Pharmaceuticals, Amit Munshi. Amit, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Great. Thank you. So many of our listeners know Arena from the Belvique days. Can you talk about that turnaround a little bit? What happened with Belvique and where the company is at today? Absolutely. So um, this management team joined about 18 months ago, and we were brought in by the board to, to essentially hit the reset button on the company. Um, Belvique was... Um, of course approved by the FDA, um, it was commercialized by our partner ASI Pharmaceuticals, uh, but commercially just did not have the success that was uh, originally anticipated. The, um, the board still believed there was tremendous value in the company um, and so did we as a management team coming in. And the, and the fundamental thesis is quite simple. <clears throat> While um, Belvique was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the focus of the company going forward, um, historically, and the company raised a tremendous amount of capital, they never turned the spigot off on the research efforts inside the company. So at one point they had 300 research scientists and developing a, a basket of really, really exciting compounds. And so our fundamental thesis was could we come in, could we reset the company back to being a biotech company, um, essentially skinny the focus of the company back to really being a, a, a development stage company. And our first six months of the company really focused around, um, I'll broadly call it cleanup, but it was essentially re rebooting the company to being a biotech company. We uh, took the company back down to about 38 people. Um, we uh, divested the discovery research platform. We renegotiated and got out of all of our future Belvique obligations with our partner ASI and, um, and really began to rebuild the clinical development efforts inside the company. So looking back on the decision to hand the rights back to ASI, was that the right decision for the company? Absolutely. We were on the hook for a tremendous amount of, of money and uh, it wasn't something that we'd be rewarded for in the public markets. Um, so we really uh, tried to tried to create a new value proposition 
and um, around the pipeline of candidates, uh, pipeline of product candidates that was uh, essentially sitting on a shelf. Great. So looking at the pipeline now, what yeah. are you most excited about? So um, as we started 2017, um, we began a, a tremendous amount of focus on what we consider our lead compound at that point, which was uh, Relinopec. Relinopec is a drug for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and, and PAH is an interesting disease. It's a, it's a fatal disease. It's a rare disease. It causes the blood vessels in your lungs to become narrow or blocked, and it gets harder for blood to flow through them. Um, blood pressure increases. Uh, the heart has to work harder, and eventually these patients die of right heart failure. And um, the drugs that have been approved to date um, do do have worked miracles to date, but are insufficient in, in many ways. And we thought we had a potentially best-in-class compound. So we focused really hard on getting that study enrolled for the first part of 17. Uh, we got that study enrolled and uh, reported out data in uh, approximately the middle of 17. And the data was unprecedented. We showed a, a, an effect size o over background therapy that hadn't been seen before. So um, that really set us kind of on this trajectory and invalidated our thesis that there were some great compounds sitting on the shelf. Can you talk a little bit about competition in that space and what differentiates your drug? Sure. So uh, the way our compound works is uh, through a pathway called prostacycline. It's a predominant pathway in the treatment of PAH for these patients. And the current compounds uh, really fall into basically two, two buckets in the prostacycline category. One is intravenous prostacycline, which requires patients to be on a chronic pump. Um, and the other is oral. And uh, we're, of course, an oral agent. The current oral agents, um, which are of course preferred to intravenous, but the current oral agents have a very short half-life and are um, not, not quite as potent uh, as our compound. So, um, and intravenous is the preferred therapy. It's the only drug that's ever shown activity um, in terms of long-term effects on mortality. So the idea with our compound was to have a once-a-day oral that began to look like intravenous prostacycline. So um, our product has a 24-hour half-life, and it's roughly six and a half to ten-fold more potent um, than what's currently considered the, the gold standard for oral prostacycline. It's a drug called Selexapec, um, which is uh, commercialized by J Johnson & Johnson. So we're really excited. We think this is a breakthrough um, in the prostacycline category, and we think this has the opportunity to redefine how patients are treated. Very exciting. And when can patients hopefully look forward to seeing it in the market? Well, well we haven't provided any guidance yet. We're, we have to work through the, the regulatory pathways. We're currently preparing for a phase three program. Uh, we expect to be in a phase three program by the second half of 2018. Um, and uh, as, as you know, there's a long path to get to, to starting a phase three program, including a tremendous amount of um, ongoing uh, correspondence and activity with the regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Europe. Absolutely. Turning to another drug in the pipeline, I want to talk a little bit about APD317, sure. which is a cannabinoid drug. Um, so is it fair to call Arena a pot stock because of this, this one compound? You know, we, we get that a lot. Um, you know, before we go to 371, we have a, a, a critical milestone between here and 371, which is um, etrazomod. Etrazomod is a drug that has a broad clinical utility across, we think, somewhere between 80 and 100 autoimmune conditions. It works on a pathway called S1P modulation. And we expect phase two data from that compound in the first quarter of uh, 2018. And, um, and then right behind that is APD371, our uh, CB2 receptor agonist. Um, it's interesting, we get, we get that question a lot around whether we're a pot stock or not. The, the target here <clears throat> isn't a derivative of um, cannabis, it's not an extract. Um, we're, we're simply targeting one of the many receptors that, um, that are in, endogenous in our body, that exist already in our body. And uh, CB2 is, is, um, is widely considered one of the key uh, inflammatory and pain regulators in the body. 
um, we produce natural compounds in our body that, that actually hit that receptor. And what we've done is create a fully synthetic compound, um, has no uh, overlap, no homology, we call, uh, we call it, uh, to, the, uh, to cannabis. And it targets the CB2 receptor in a very, very selective way. It's also designed to be peripherally restricted. Uh, which means that it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It does not cause any psychotropic activity. So um, it's really designed, it, it, our focus is really on the science of the receptor rather than really being a, a cannabinoid. Yeah, and the great thing about not crossing the blood-brain barrier is that you don't get that euphoria and you know, hopefully this drug, if it were on the market, could reduce some of the reliance on opioids. So given that there is this very tangential, as you explained, but still a relationship to marijuana, are there any sort of complications that you have with this drug in particular in a regulatory sense or even just getting uh, the clinical trials up and rolling that you wouldn't find with other drugs? Well, we, um, th there's two parts to that question. First is on the regulatory side, and we don't know yet. We're, we're in a phase 2A pilot study. We're a long way away from having very detailed regulatory conversations about um, about being able to measure um, reliance or, or, um, or, or how this compares to opioids in terms of addiction. Um, the, the second part of the question in terms of uh, enrolling these studies, um, we're trying, we're, the, the studies that are ongoing now are looking at pain associated with Crohn's disease. And um, we're, we're actually quite astounded as we went out and did a lot of our feasibility work as to how many patients, um, depending on state by state, but how many patients are actually on cannabis in Crohn's disease, it's it's actually quite stunning, and um, and of course we can't have a patient on cannabis when they're taking our drug, so uh, that that does pose a, a, a challenge in terms of uh, in terms of recruiting patients. However, um, you know understanding that that cannabis alone is not a solution, um, and that these patients have lingering pain, and cannabis is a, a partial receptor agonist to CB2, which means it only it only partially blocks the receptor. Uh, whereas we're a full agonist, and um, so we think we have the opportunity to create even greater pain relief for these patients. Very interesting. One question that I want to ask has yeah. to do more with the broader business strategy. Um, when you look at the company, would you consider a buyout a good outcome? Is that something that, as an executive, you would like to see? Um, again, it's a, it's a question we get routinely. What's your game plan? Are you looking to get sold? I, I don't think a a company ever looks to get sold. I think the what you do is you attempt to build the best company you can. You you remain as capital efficient as you can. Um, you progress the, the compounds in as mo uh, diligent a way as you possibly can. And the game game plan is to always control what you can control. So um, you can never control if someone wants to acquire the company. We're publicly traded. Everyone knows what the value of the company is. Um, our focus internally has nothing to do with that. Our focus is, is just to build the best company we possibly can and create as much value for shareholders and patients as we can. It's a good answer. It's very similar to what we tell investors, which is don't buy a company because you hope that it gets acquired. Buy a company because you think it's a good company. And if it gets acquired, that just means that somebody else also a thought it was a good Absolutely. We, we talk a lot internally about just controlling our own destiny and um, you know making decisions that allow us to build a long-term uh, game plan for the company. And it, again, um, as a public company, we have fiduciary responsibilities to our shareholders. If if someone came knocking, we have an obligation to, to listen um, and uh, and to evaluate the, the appropriate value of the company. But our focus is absolutely to build out these compounds. And between Relinopec readout last year, getting ready for phase three in 18, um, the Atrazomod readout in the first quarter of 18, APD 371, 
um, and we've we've publicly now stated that we anticipate bringing additional products online in the back end of 2018. And so we've got a really deep and rich portfolio, and um, our, our responsibility is to progress them um, so that we we can create value for, again for shareholders and patients. Perfect. So since we're here at JP Morgan, I want to give our listeners a little bit of a taste for the conference. As somebody that will be presenting at the conference, what are your main goals? What is what has this conference been like for you? Um, the main goal for the week is uh, first and foremost to stay awake um, <laughs> and uh, and get through the um, the gauntlet of meetings. So um, we've had tremendous investor interest as a company. Um, I think we're we're looking down the barrel about 80 uh, or so investor meetings this week. So getting through the the investor meetings. Um, being able to continuously tell a cogent story in response to investor inquiries. Uh, this is a fantastic start to the year. It's, it's, a, it's a catalyst to the year, and it leads to a lot of follow-up conversations. And uh, as we go through the year, from a good chunk of these investors that we talked to this week, there'll be follow-up conversations. And you know, we're constantly looking for investors who haven't heard the new arena story, who remember, as most of your listeners do, to the, the original Belvic story around the company. Um, and, and we've had tremendous success in, in getting new people interested in, in, the, um, in the equity. So, um, you know, we, we want to continue to talk to new investors. We're going to continue to use this meeting <coughs> excuse me, as a catalyst <coughs> for the rest of the year. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. Right. Thank you so much. Take care. Last but not least, in fact, this was the company I was the most excited to talk to, is Spark Therapeutics CEO, Jeff Marazzo. I am here with the CEO of Spark Therapeutics, Jeff Marazzo. Jeff, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for being here with me today. So your first drug was approved almost a month earlier than expected by the FDA. And I'm kind of interested from a human angle. How was that day in the office? How did it all go down? Uh, it was it was a fabulous day. I mean, it was really a day that uh, there's few moments I think in certainly in your professional life that will uh, will rise to that moment. It was first and foremost a day that I think we all took a step back and realized sort of how special it was for for patients. First, these are uh, this is a group of diseases in inherited retinal diseases where uh, patients here to before this moment for that moment had had uh, had had. Uh, no, no treatment avail- options available to them pharmacologically. And so it was a really special day for patients. You know, I dare say it's a, it was a historical moment for medicine because you're talking about a first ever gene therapy for genetic disease proof in the United States. And it was certainly an incredibly proud day for all of us at Spark to not only see what had been days, weeks, months, years, decades of hard work, depending upon who you're talking about in the organization, uh, all come together as a team and, and get to that moment of an approval. It's a, an amazing moment, one that you, you don't soon forget. I'm sure it was incredible. And congratulations to you and your team on that approval. Thank you. So as you look to pivot to commercial stage, can you talk me through some of the challenges and what you're doing to meet those? Sure. So one of the things that we announced last week was not only our wholesale acquisition cost, but I think just as importantly, uh, three novel payment and distribution models that we think are important in establishing access for patients that might be eligible for Luxterna, as well as we think beginning to set some of the principles for how other one-time gene therapy treatments could be available and and be accessible for patients going forward. And so we announced these three novel models, and the principles behind those models are, first and foremost, we want to make sure that uh, we are demonstrating that we stand behind our product. We've shown through uh, an agreement in principle with Harvard Pilgrim an outcomes-based arrangement where we are not only standing behind the short-term efficacy of the product, but the long-term durability of the product, which, of course, is a major premise of gene therapy as a a promise and as a technology. 
technology. Uh, secondly, we are we've developed an innovative contracting model that would really eliminate uh, some of the markups that payers see on traditional provider-administered drugs. Uh, would also allow treatment centers to not have to shell out the dollars that they need to acquire these products, um, and ultimately, to the benefit of patients, ensure that patients have broad coverage and access, as well as rapid access, as well as try to minimize the cost out of pocket for patients. So we think a model like that uh, is also important in establishing a new way to distribute uh, a drug like Luxterna. And then third, we are in discussions with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, about an alternative way that we might be able to make Luxterna available to people, including through an installment payment option where payers might be able to pay over time. All of these things, I think, together are about trying to bring the same type of innovation to how we ensure access for patients as we have in the, in the lab as well as in the clinic in terms of what we do at Spark. How do you think that future gene therapies might compare in both price and pricing model to Luxterna? Well, I think each gene therapy or each therapy in general needs to be taken in the context of the particular the particular disease and what effect that you're really talking about. So I think it all starts with the value of the therapy. And so the value of the therapy, as you heard us speak to over the preceding couple of months before we were even approved, uh, we think was inherent when we looked at the pharmacoeconomic consequences and value associated with uh, changing the course of someone's sight. Um, but in other drugs, uh, the pharmacoeconomic uh, argument might place a different value on it, whether that's because it might be offsetting existing therapeutic expenses, like in the case of our hemophilia product candidates, or in other diseases, it might be offsetting the cost of uh, major consequential medical expenses related to surgeries or related to uh, long-term care expenses. So I think the, each product, I think, needs to be put in the context of the disease and the value that the therapy can bring to that uh, disease uh, in that context. In terms of how it ultimately gets paid for, I think some of the, the steps that we've taken to try to develop uh, novel payment and distribution models, I think those do become ways that uh, and create a, a pathway by which other types of one-time gene therapy treatments could be able to be also availed to the market and, and provide balance between the access concerns of, of patients, the budget, budget concerns of payers, and the need for companies like ours to be able to develop a path towards sustainability. Great. Makes a lot of sense. So um, as investors look out over the next couple of quarters, or more importantly, the next couple of years, what would you advise us to look out for in terms of the actual launch of the product? Um, do you think that sales figures will be particularly bumpy? And what would you expect to be a, a smooth state? Um, like how far, how far along will it take to get past that initial sales bump? Well, so we're not providing specific guidance on Luxterna sales uh, at this point. What we do believe is that what is important and why we've taken the approach we've taken with Luxterna, not just on the access side, but in general, is to really demonstrate that we can uh, execute against turning on the commercial engine and really delivering ultimately the promise uh, of gene therapy, not only from the lab to the clinic, but ultimately now to patients in actual practice. And so the ability for us to, if you will, rev up that commercial engine and get it at full speed and be able to take patients who uh, we believe are, are, are eligible, have been diagnosed and are eligible and get them to be able to get access to the therapy if that's the choice that they make, uh, we're really going to measure ourselves on how well we're doing um, on, that me on that benchmark and that uh, measurement. Um, and, uh, and as we get out and have more experience sort of in the market, and get a sense of sort of the pace and whether there you know, could be some seasonality in the context of when treatments might occur, then I think we'll be able to provide a little more insight into how we might see things go on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis. But right now, we're really thinking about the launch in the context of 
to this quarter being really about establishing and setting up those treatment centers to make the product available. And then really starting in Q2 all the way through, frankly, all of 2019, thinking about it holistically as a period where we're really building that commercial engine um, and getting it up and up and running and being successful in pros- prosecuting uh, the opportunity and giving patients uh, opportunities to have access. Got it. So investors and patients alike have been very intrigued by what your company is doing in hemophilia. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask a couple of questions about that. Can you lay out just generally the opportunity there and where Spark comes in? Yeah, so I think hemophilia uh, is an incredibly exciting opportunity for gene therapy in general, right? What you're talking about is is trans- dra- dramatically transforming the standard of care, right? Today we we uh, we treat the disease through chronic infusions of factor, uh, and yet despite that, we still have uh, regular uh, episodes of bleeding in patients as they try to manage their disorder. And obviously, every patient is different, and the severity is different, but that is a general principle. And gene therapy has the potential to transform that standard of care with a single dose having the potential to dramatically, if not eliminate the risk of bleeds, as well as eliminate the need for infusions. And uh, what's been so exciting about the data that we've seen across our hemophilia portfolio so far uh, is, first of all, in different diseases or different subtypes were earlier than than others where we're a bit further on, still in phase one, two, and both. But what, what's been so exciting is, one, that the safety data has been very good and very encouraging. We've not seen any serious adverse events. We've not seen any thrombotic events. We've not seen any inhibitors form. Those are all incredibly important steps, I think, as a first step in hemophilia gene therapy. We've also seen dramatic clinical outcomes. And we talk about reducing by by nearly 100% uh, the bleeding rates in patients who have been in our studies, as well as dramatically uh, almost eliminating in almost every instance the infusion rates that these patients used to have to take once, twice, three times a week. I mean, you're talking about totally changing not only the paradigm for uh, a, a, a treatment approach in medicine, but importantly from the patient's perspective, uh, I dare say sort of really making them think differently about their disease. And ultimately, not to forget from a payer perspective, allowing the possibility for cost offsets, really thinking different, differently about uh, the, the consequence and the cost to treat this disease in a way that's that's really transformative and disruptive. And so it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, for the field in general to be applying the technology to hemophilia. We were pleased with the fact we were able to publish our data from hemophilia B in the New England Journal of Medicine last month. Uh, we're incredibly excited and bullish on our progress, albeit early in hemophilia A, and look forward to providing updates in the second or third quarter of this year as we continue to uh, work towards both planning for a phase three study while also working to find the optimal dose for that product candidate. Um, but but we're ex- really excited to be a part of the potential solutions in the future for hemophilia. Why is hemophilia A such a different challenge than hemophilia B? Well, I don't know that it necessarily is. I mean, we, we have been uh, really encouraged uh, by, by the early data that we've seen. I think our expectation going in was that we might need to do uh, some dose-finding work, uh, where in hemophilia B, I will say that two years ago, uh, if we sat here only two or three weeks after we dosed the first patient in our hemophilia B trial, um, we probably thought at that point we might have to do some dose-finding work. turns out in hemophilia B, we kind of got it right on the first dose. That is sort of atypical. Um, and so we expected that we'd need to do some dose-finding work. We were incredibly encouraged that the, the low dose, our first dose that we tried in our hemophilia A trial, we saw therapeutically relevant levels. We were getting predictable clinical outcomes uh, in the context of, of the reduction, 100% reduction in bleeds. Um, and so, uh, you know, what we're doing is what you normally do in, in most standard phase one, two studies, which is that you identify 
uh, a, ther- a dose that is having clinical uh, outcomes and is safe, um, but then continue to push and test whether or not there are ways to drive uh, even greater outcomes by doing dose finding. And that's what we're doing right now. So we're very confident about, about the program. Look forward to providing updates in the second or third quarter. Great. So pivoting topics a little bit, um, there are some concerns about the orphan drug tax credit being cut in half. To what extent does that affect your company? And um, how are you thinking about that? How big of an issue might it be? Well, I think it is a relevant issue. I think, uh, and and as far as I understand, it did actually get uh, get modified in in the legislation that passed uh, the uh, House and the Senate it was signed into legis- signed into law by by the president uh, late, late last year. Uh, look, I think at the end of the day, the 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 inst- the tool of the orphan drug uh, uh, programs in general has been incredibly effective, not just in helping facilitate. Um, access in the regulatory process, but obviously also creating incentives for businesses uh, to invest in diseases where there's very few number of patients that are affected. And if you take a step back, there's about 7,000 rare diseases uh, that affect people in the United States. Uh, As I understand it, the last figures were that 6,600 of those 7,000 did not have any treatment. So despite the, the remarkable progress that's been made, um, in orphan diseases over the last uh, 20, 30 years, um, there clearly is a lot more to go, right? And I think gene therapy as a modality and a technology uh, is an exciting one because for those diseases where you couldn't try to treat it through a regular or recurrent infusion, whether that might be, for example, uh, various central nervous system disorders where you can't do repeat administrations into the brain because you can't do repeat neurosurgical procedure, gene therapy creates a promise that you could only do do that procedure one time and might have a long-lasting effect. And we have multiple programs going on uh, in our lab, uh, in our research efforts in central nervous system area as well. So I think there's a huge need still there. And so anything that changes what has been a program that I think has driven success to get to 400 of those diseases having options, the fact that 6,600 still don't have options uh, means that I think that the policy was probably working, maybe frankly should have been accelerated and certainly should have been decelerated, which is effectively what I think the effect of that tax credit change is. Gotcha. So before I let you go, I want to give our listeners a, a sense of the conference So uh, Spark has gotten a lot of attention since last year's conference. How has that changed your experience here at JP Morgan? Well, I would say that that we uh, look. We really appreciate the fact that that people in general, whether they be from the investor side of the world, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's patients, whether it's healthcare professionals, uh, whether it's payers, um, you know, my view is that that all of these stakeholders within the system. You know, we need to find ways to partner with people to develop new solutions, whether it be for the development of new a new technology, whether it be for the development of new payment models. Uh, I think there's a shared responsibility that a company like Spark has with a lot of other people. We don't get this done alone. We got to sort of share in part. We either have partner with people. We have to share in that responsibility with people. Uh, and so, you know, I, I certainly welcome the opportunity of people to come up and, and chat with us and talk about ways that we can work together to, to, to make ultimately uh, solutions like one-time transfer of treatments, which I think are the future of where medicine is going, uh, not only adopted uh, 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 as fast as it can be, but even faster if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite moment from the conference so far? 
Well, look, I think some of my, some of my favorite moments are, are when uh, I've spent a bunch of the last couple of days in meetings with investors. I always certainly appreciate when people uh, uh, come in and uh, and begin with you know that congratulatory uh, remark on the approval. It, it was certainly an amazing moment as, as we spoke about at the beginning of this interview for us at Spark. Um, and for those investors in particular that have been with us for a long time, I always share with them that they have been very much a partner in that journey and, and, and usually like the opportunity to turn around and say to them, well, thank you for the support along that way. I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of us being successful, I believe, is the fact that we've had a number of our shareholders for a long time stuck with us and been with us for a long time. And, and so the success that we had, uh, you know, I hope that they share in that as well. Yeah, and I'm sure they're hoping to stay around as investors for a long time as well. That's my hope too. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's everything I have lined up for the show. It's been an amazing few days here at the conference, and I hope you've all enjoyed getting a taste of it. Shameless plug, I now have a Twitter account that I made while I was in my lift from the Oakland airport to my hotel, so it's brand new, and you can find me at Christine Hargis. A quick thank you to all the listeners who took the time to meet up with me at the conference. It was amazing meeting you all face-to-face. And especially big thank you to Austin Morgan this week for stitching together these various clips and not uttering a single word of complaint, despite me still needing to call him for tech support after fully training me back at HQ on how a recorder works. The guy is a real champion. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!